Today we are back in the Old Testament. We are in the easiest book in the Old Testament to find. Put your finger right in the center. Look for the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you can find Matthew, you can find Malachi. The only book easier to find is Genesis, and that's because it's the first book in the Old Testament. Today we are going to see a book that we very seldom visit. The book of Malachi is not often preached about because it's not necessarily a positive message, but it has positive things to say to us. So I want us to learn today from this little book of the Old Testament. I want us to look at what God was saying to his people right before he became silent. Now, when you love somebody, you oftentimes give them gifts, right? Anniversary gifts are one example. Birthday gifts are another. Or some sort of celebratory gift, like when you graduate from high school or your team wins a game, you, you have these gifts that you give. Now, the way that you give a gift says a lot about your relationship to that person. When you, want, when you really love somebody, when you really care about them, and you're really proud of that, of that accomplishment or what happens, you give them a gift commensurate with the situation, right, that goes along with it. Consider this. If you are my age or older, you sang an old hymn. It goes like this. I am not singing. I promise. I learned my lesson last time. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him what? I freely give. When we sing that hymn, it's about our offering, not just of our financial resources or of some object that we have. It's about giving ourselves to God. And it says all to Jesus. The question I want to put in your mind right now today, before we get started in the book of Malachi, have you given Jesus everything? Have you given Jesus everything? Have you? Because you know what? We should always give our best because he is the best. He is the best thing in our lives. He is the best part of our existence. And when we think about giving something to God commensurate with who he is, we have to give our best because he is the best. And when we look at what we offer to God, when we look at what we lay before him, what we put in an offering plate, or what we offer on Monday morning when we go about our lives, it's really important that we ask, does my offering, does my day, does my attitude, does my disposition, do my words reflect my love for a holy God? If you want to know, does your offering match up to your love for God? You can answer these three questions. I'm going to ask you three questions as we go through Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Three questions that will help you define your love for a holy God. First question is right here. Does your gift, do the things you give to God, your life, your time, your thoughts, your efforts, do they reflect your love for God? Malachi 1.1. Here we are. A pronouncement which may be interpreted as an urgent prophecy or an urgent calling, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Malachi. So the word of the Lord has come to Israel through Malachi. Stop right there. I know I don't usually stop after the first verse, but here we are. Malachi is not a person's name. Does anyone actually know someone named Malachi? Because I do. I know someone named Malachi. Unfortunately, in Hebrew, that's not a name. It's a title. Malach means the messenger, a messenger. Malachi or Malachi, 
actually means my personal messenger. God sends this message to Israel through his personal messenger. That's the title given. Now, if we want to go back and put this in perspective, this is the last book of prophecy written in about 420 B.C. Remember, Jesus is born about 4 B.C. So this is roughly 400 and some, sorry, 400 and some years before the birth of Jesus. So these 400 years of silence that we talk about are this, these years where God is doing something, but he's no longer speaking through a prophet. The real prophet here is actually Ezra. Ezra, who is the one who came back to Jerusalem, came back to restore the religious worship, came back to restore this sanctity to God, this commitment to God. Ezra is the one that we believe actually is the Malachi, the, the personal messenger of God. It was his writings in about 420 that we believe are here. Now, he does not identify himself because God does not address this to the prophet or to the priest, Ezra. He says it to the Malachi, the Malachi, to this personal messenger. So he goes on. A pronouncement, the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you. Don't you love it when someone says they love you? I love you. I've loved you. That's what he says to them. Says Yahweh. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? They were in captivity for 70 years. They were taken into captivity because of their disobedience to God's word. How did God show his love? He brought them back to Jerusalem. He brought them back to their home, back to the place where the temple had been. That's how he showed his love. But he says, you have asked me, the people, you've asked me, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is Yahweh's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. By hated, he literally means by comparison. It means I loved Jacob. I set my love on him. I chose to love you. I want you to consider something. The word adopted in Hebrew is so important. When you are an adopted child, it means someone has not loved you because you're born in the family. It means that person has set their love on you. They've chosen to love you. The adopted child is always special. Why? Because you don't have to love somebody else's child. You choose to love them. You choose to give them your love. You choose to give them your protection. It should have been Esau who inherited the blessing. It should have been him. He was the firstborn. But God chose to love Jacob more. Chose to use Jacob as that chosen vessel through whom this line of Abraham will go on. We who are Gentiles, who are not Jews by birth, we have been loved by God through Jesus Christ. Not because we're of Abraham's line, but because we have set our hope and faith in Yahweh. And when we do that, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are chosen to be the recipients of his love. So in that way, this is very much to us. I have loved you. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is Yahweh's declaration. Even so, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. You know, by comparison, Esau was a very irreligious man. He was not a good man. He was not a lover of God. He was disobedient to everything God put in front of him. I turned his mountains into 
See me, I turned his waste mounds into a wasteland. I gave his inheritance to the desert jackals, though Edom, which is the people of Esau, though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. Yahweh of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. I will not bless those who curse you. He told Abraham, I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. You ever been cursed by somebody? You ever had someone talk bad about you, talk trash about you, say things about you because maybe your, your past life wasn't the best? Maybe you made some mistakes. Maybe you made some bad decisions. You see, that's not what happens. When you are blessed by God, it doesn't matter the mistakes you've made in the past. God's blessing reigns. Esau had turned their back on the God of Israel. And they said, we're going to stand by our own hand. We're going to rise up by our own power. God said, no, you're not. Without me, you are nothing. And that is the truth. Without the love of God and Jesus Christ, we have no stake in eternity. I want you to keep that in your mind. It's very important. They will be called the wicked country and the people Yahweh has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, Yahweh is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. Remember that in this time, a God was restricted to his country. God was restricted to the country of his people. So for them, if you're in a Moabite country, Moab is, is the dictator of who God is. If you're in Israel, it's going to be Yahweh. If you're among the Romans, it's the plethora, the pantheon of their gods that reigns. But this is telling us, even beyond Israel, Yahweh is Lord of all things. So it doesn't matter whether you're in America, China, Great Britain, doesn't matter if you're in Turkey or in another Islamic country, Yahweh is still God and will always be God. Isn't that amazing? When God says, I have loved you, what greater gift could he have given you than a love that extends around the world? You know, guys always say when they fall in love with a girl, I would give you the moon. Well, see, a man can't do that because he doesn't own the moon. But when God says, I have loved you, in all places, at all times, with all of my might, that is a love that circumnavigates the world. A love that nobody can cut you off from. Do you realize that? You cannot be cut off from the love of God, no matter what happens, no matter where you go. Proverbs 11, 19 through 21 says this, whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live. There's a promise from God. You walk in the righteousness of Christ, you will live. But he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to Yahweh. But those of blameless ways, meaning you walk in the ways of God, walk in the ways of faith, believing in Christ for righteousness, your ways are perfect. You will always be a delight to God. Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. There's God's promise even way back here in Proverbs. The proverb is, when you are of God's people, you are blessed. And we who are Gentiles by birth have been grafted into Israel. We are blessed because of our faith in Christ, a faith that no one can destroy or overturn. So the first thing you have to ask, is your love matching to what God has done for you? Is does your gift to God, you're coming to church, you're reading the Bible, you're tithing, you're sharing the gospel with other people, does that come out of love or out of fear? 
There's a lot of churches that teach you if you earn your salvation by giving away these many pamphlets or by selling these many books or by knocking on these many doors, they say that you can earn your salvation, but you can't. You already have salvation in Christ. All you can do is celebrate it and let everybody else know. When there's an anniversary in the church, everyone knows there's an anniversary in the church. We celebrate those six years you've had together because those six years are a blessing to us because your presence is a blessing to us. God says the same thing. Every year you walk in Christ, you should celebrate another year with the maker of all things, with the God who brought you into that relationship. Second thing I want you to see is this. Second question I want you to answer is this. Does your gift fulfill God's stated expectations? I have a perfect example here. Gentlemen, one day you will discover this. When is your wife's birthday or it's an anniversary or it's another special occasion? And you kind of ask your wife, dear, what would you like for your birthday, your anniversary, for Christmas, whatever? And she says, oh, there's this pretty little ring or there's this purse or these really nice shoes. And if you're really audacious, well, I really don't want a Ford Ranger. I want a Range Rover. Okay, when your wife asks for that, you find the cash. You just go do it. Okay, so your wife will tell you what she is looking for for that occasion. Amen? Now, you come to that occasion after having had several months to figure it out. And he says, here you go, dear. I got you this new uh, staple puller. Or I got you this new blender. Or this new mixer. Or, hey, I really love you so much I gave you this barbecue pit. Do you think your wife who asked for the ring or the bag or the shoes or the Range Rover is going to be happy with the barbecue pit? I think not. So sometimes what we bring to God, what we consider our offering, does not bless the Lord. Look at this. Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is the reverence of me that should be coming from you. Where's the reverence? Where's the awesome fear and reverence that you should show me? Most people treat God like he's not real. Yes, I know there's a God, but he doesn't really care what I do. He doesn't care what I think. He doesn't care what I say. He doesn't care how I behave myself. We think that God's there, but God really doesn't change anything about the way we live our life. We kind of know it, but we kind of ignore it. The same way that we ignore our parents when we get to a certain age. I don't know, like 16. You know, you start the, you can do anything you want to. Live your life any way you please. I'm not picking on you. I swear, we've all been there. It might have been 100 years ago, but I was 16 once. Here we go. He says this. If I'm a master, where's your fear of me, says the Yahweh of armies. To you priests. Now he's picking on the people who are the leaders of the people. Here's the people that should be showing how things are done. And it's going to go right to them. To you priests, you despise my name. We go, wait a minute. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? You ask. When you say Yahweh's table is contemptible. Oh, church isn't really important. Church doesn't matter. You don't have to go to church. Church is just kind of a thing you go to when you have time or when it's convenient. Now, as a pastor for a long time, I have seen this attitude in men more times than not. 
Men think that church is for little kids. It's for kids like Raymond. You know, he needs to grow up and, and learn these lessons when he's a little boy. But when you get to a certain age, other things are more important than church. When you say other things are more important than church, you are doing exactly what these priests did. The Lord's house, his table, his offering is contemptible. It's not worth my time. It's not worth my effort. Verse 8, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you and show you favor? You see, there was a thing. There were expectations made of what you could offer to God on a sacrifice. And that animal had to be spotless. It had to be pure. It could not be sick or blind or lame. It had to be a perfectly good animal. Why? Why did it have to be so expensive? Because you don't give the governor junk. When you meet someone who is important, like the president or, or the prime minister of a country or a king or a queen even, you don't give them some trivial piece of garbage. You give them the very best that you have in keeping with who they are. Amen? But people said, you know, why do I want to give God the best? Why do I want to give him a tenth of my tithe? Why do I want to give him the best animal? I, this animal is worth so much money, I could sell this animal and be rich. Why do I want to give my best to God? And God is saying to the priests, you are allowing people to do the bare minimum and telling them it's okay. We see that in church. We see a lot of pastors who tell people it's okay not to be dedicated to God. It's okay to give God a little bit of your attention, a little bit of your time, a little bit of your effort. Oh, you say you don't have time. That's okay. Go ahead. You can make it up to God later. For the priest to do that, for the pastor to do that, we are disrespecting who God is and what God expects. He keeps going on. He says this. Ask Yahweh of armies and now plead for God's favor. Tell God, yeah, I gave you junk. I gave you a blind animal, a broken animal. I gave you an animal I couldn't sell or use. That's why I gave it to you. It was no good to me. Yet God demands our very best, the best of our time, of our thoughts, of our emotions, of our energy, of our skills, of our dedicated abilities. There are people out there who could be in church doing amazing things. They are great teachers. They are great musicians. They are great singers. They are great. They have tremendous skills and abilities. Yet if you ask them, have you ever used those in church? You know what they're going to tell you? Well, I can't make any money in church. I knew a pastor once was in ministry. He left ministry. Do you know why? There's no money in it. You can't make enough money doing this. Stuff. I can take this into the corporate world, these skills and abilities, and I can make a lot of money. So I'm going to give my offerings over here to the God of wealth and power and success. And I'm not going to waste my time with church. Only people who can't do it in the real world wind up in church. Let me tell you, it's farthest thing from the truth. Yeah, you can spend your time and effort to get rich and wealthy and powerful. Or you can serve a God who will bless you for eternity. Where your job will, st will stop the second that you die. Or get sick or lose your voice, or lose that skill and ability that God's given you. It's amazing. Have we given God the gift he expects? 
Since so now, now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to you since this has come from your hands? Will he show you any favor? Ask Yahweh of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. God says, don't even show up in the temple. Don't even come to my house. Don't even come in here if you're just going to come and do the bare minimum to walk in, throw something on the altar that is useless to you, and then walk away back to everything I bless you with. He says, don't even do that. Don't even bother coming in if you're not going to give me the best that I deserve. Because I'm God. I am God. In fact, I know a lot of pastors who think they're God, and they think the people should give them the best of the best. So a pastor once, a lady in the congregation, saved up all her money, bought a beautiful diamond ring for the pastor, a pinky ring. I don't know why pastors need pinky rings, but there you go. She gave it to him, threw it back at her. How dare you bring this to your pastor? And she's like, what happened? What did I do? He says, you ever come to me again and bring anything less than a full carrot and you won't be welcome in this church because the pastor deserves the best. And last time I checked, pastors don't deserve anything. God deserves the best, the best of your time, of your energy, of your focus. You see, that's what happens when people think that they're God and they're not. They start acting like tyrants and dictators. And that's what you have to be careful of. Anytime you got a pastor who thinks you owe him something, you need to run away and find a church where you can serve in peace. So there it is. He says this, No longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Yahweh of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. God's not going to bless when you just throw some mess up there and expect him to give you everything for that meager offering, for that, for that leftover that you throw him. And he goes on, Deuteronomy 15, 21 says this, But if any animal, any offering has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, whatever, you shall not offer it to Yahweh your God. Why? Because the way you treat the one you love is important. I will tell you this to be the truth. Any man who gives his wife less than 100% is not worthy of that wife. Now, you're not, you're not, I'm not going to say amen. I know you're not, but you know it's true. Any woman that gives a man less than 100% of herself doesn't deserve that man. I don't say that very often, but there's the truth. God deserves 100% of everything we are. Time, talent, money, skills, abilities, attention, affection, love. You know how you know you love somebody? When you want to be with them. When you want to spend time with them. When you consider their needs before your needs. That's how you know what love is. Love is not an emotion. It's not a feeling that you have today and lose tomorrow. Love is a commitment that you make to another person because you see in that person someone of value, someone who deserves that time and attention, that relationship. Those are the relationships that last. Those are the ones where people cling to each other. It says in the Old Testament, when, when a man finds a good woman, it says he will leave his mother and father leave behind what he has and he will cleave to her. It means cling for dear life to her. 
if that happens in human relationships, how much more with God when we have found this joyous salvation? We have found a God who has loved us, forgiven us, washed us, cleansed us, forgiven us for all the mistakes we've ever made. And then we cling to that God, to him, to him alone, to his word, his thoughts, his way of doing things. You see, people think it's funny when you find a, a couple that's been married for a long time and they start acting like each other. They start looking like each other. And, and we're praying to God that my wife does not wind up looking like me. That's not something I wish on anybody. But I mean, think about this. Why do you look like each other and sound like each other and talk like each other? Why do you have all these things in common? Because you spend day after week after month after decade together learning who that person is. And of course, you're going to become like the person you love. You're going to become like the God you serve. A lot of people look just like their God, greedy, selfish, inwardly looking. That's the God they serve. That's the God they become like. In fact, the Old Testament says when people made gods of wood or of stone or of gold or silver, they became just like the gods they worshipped. They could neither see nor hear. Their hands could not serve. Their feet could not move. They were a dead object just sitting there. And that's what a lot of people become when they serve a god of gold and silver and, and other things. But let's finish this up. So the first question I ask you is, does your gift for God flow from love, flow from an adoration of who he is and what he has done? Second, does your, is your gift appropriate to a God who has given you everything? Is it an appropriate gift or is it a cheap measured gift? Is it a blind animal? Is it a lame or a blind or a broken thing, a broken offering? The third thing is this, does your gift cost you dearly? When you marry a woman, it is her and her alone for the rest of your life. I, I stress this when I do weddings, when I do marriages. You are committing to this person not for today, not for tomorrow, not for this year, not for the next five years, not till you get the kids out of the house. You are committing to this person until the day God takes you home. It is an absolute commitment of life. And when you get baptized, the same thing is true. You are committing your life, your choices, your decisions to the God who has brought you to that moment. Take a look at this. Malachi 1.11. Does your gift cost you dearly? My name will be great among the nations. That's actually can be translated. My name is great among the nations. People knew of Yahweh. Even Rahab the prostitute knew of the God of Israel when they came to the walls of Jericho. So my name is great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings are going to be presented in my name in every place because my name is great among the nations, says Yahweh of armies. But you are profaning it. You are saying that the Lord's table is detestable and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look what a nuisance, and you scorn it. This is what... Yahweh of armies has said, you bring stolen, blind, lame, sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands? Ask Yahweh. The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to Yahweh. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of armies, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Wow. 
God says, you have the offering that I deserve. When we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, the only offering he wants is every bit of me, every bit of you, every bit of us. You have the acceptable offering in your hands, yet you choose to give God less than he deserves. The people had these perfect animals, these perfect sheep, without blemish, not broken, not blind. They had the right offering to give to God, but they were too cheap to do it. They could not let go of the physical thing that they held in their hands for the thing that was even more real, the God of their fathers. And that's the thing that is so, so crazy. Mark 12, 41 and 44 illustrates this perfectly. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. If you've ever seen the coins of Israel or the coins of the Roman Empire, silver coins were large, gold coins were larger, copper coins were tiny. They were, they were the size of a small almond. They were tiny, these copper coins, because the money was made of precious metal. The more precious, the larger, the more it's worth. These copper coins were, were just tiny. They were small. So for her to say, here's two small copper coins, anybody looking would have said, wow, this person must be broke. This person must not have anything to throw in just that. And look at me. I put in all this silver, all this gold. God must love me. And this old lady, she's just got these two little coins. That's nothing. So they made up to a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty and has put in everything she had, all she has to live on. Which offering is acceptable? We always know the answer. People who give out of their abundance give what they can spare. I can spare an hour on Sunday. I can spare an hour to go sit in church and make God happy. The kind of the way you go sometimes to a, a relative's house. You don't go to the relative's house because you like them, because you love them. You don't go to that relative's house because they're giving you really great food to eat or, you know, that they're going to give you a gift or whatever. You know, you go to the relative's house to be seen, to check off the box on the visitation list, and then you leave. That's how people treat God. They treat God like a broke relative that they got to show up and say hi to. Then they can leave and go back to their life. When you give out of your abundance, God doesn't notice that. Yeah, I have an hour. I can do this. But when you give the only free time you have, when you give your dedication, your devotion, your focus, when you get up in the morning and you sit down with your coffee and you open that devotional journal, it's only one page, but you're in a hurry. You've got things to do, but you make the time to stop at the beginning of the day to look into God's word and see if it challenges you, to see if it puts a finger on your heart, to see if it shows you something you didn't otherwise see. That's the important thing. This widow gave everything she had because God was worth everything. The question becomes, do we give God everything we have? Our time, our thoughts, our actions. Do we make decisions based on God's standard or do we make decisions based on what I can get away with? Giving is 
little as possible. It's tax season, in case you didn't notice that. Tax season is about hiring someone who's a specialist in trying to save you as much money on your taxes as possible. Now, first of all, I am not opposed to this because I myself, I'm a man under authority and I know I have to pay my taxes. And so I don't mind having someone go, here's what you owe, now pay it. Okay, that's cool. I can do that. I can do that. But there are people who have millions upon millions of dollars and they hire people to make them pay as little as humanly possible. I don't want to say that that multimillionaires and these billionaires are not paying their taxes. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they want to pay as little as humanly possible. And that's fine with taxes. That's just money. But do we do that with God? Do we tell God, God, I want to give you as little as I have to to satisfy you. I want to give you the, the minimum that I can give because I don't want to give anymore. I don't have much to spare. And that's exactly what's happening here. God says, I don't take that. You have what you've committed to me. You've committed to me your whole self, your whole being, your livelihood. You've committed to me the decisions you make, who you marry, what kind of job you take. You've committed that to me. Now give that to me and let me make something amazing of you. I mean, Charles Stanley said it this morning. He says, sometimes God takes things out of your life and you don't know why. Sometimes God puts things in your life and you don't know why. But when you get to my age, you've been through enough crises of faith. You've been through enough decisions, enough moves that you begin to look back over your years or decades, half centuries, and you go, ah, that's why God moved me. That's why God took me from here to there. That's why he changed things up. That's why I did the things that I did, because it brought me to this place where I have it. If I had not gone to seminary in California, I would never have met my friend Martin. If I had never followed him to Taiwan, I would never have discovered the church I did. Had I not gone to that church, I would not have been a Sunday school teacher. Just a, a hint for Sunday school teachers. Because I was a Sunday school teacher, I met my wife. See, God is good. When you follow through and you commit that time, you commit those plans, God can put things into your life that will change you forever. Had I never met my wife, I would not have my daughter. If I didn't have her and my wife, I might not be standing here today. I might be somewhere else. I might be out fishing or hunting or doing something else that's fun, but not necessary. Here's the thing. What's our takeaway from all of this? What's our takeaway from this first chapter of Malachi written by Ezra, 420 B.C.? This is what it is. Psalm 139, 22, sorry, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Oh, you want God to look at you. The people who are here, the people receiving this message, Ezra wanted them to hear the words of God that they needed to be examined. They needed to look into their life and see where they were falling short, where they were giving God broken, lame dedication. Broken and lame dedication is no dedication at all. But how do we do that? How do we get that searching and trying? Right here, Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. How? How so? How sharp is God's word? It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, which for human beings is the same thing. But God can divide so carefully and show us things that we would never see. 
It divides joints and marrow and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to know why you do what you do? You want to know why you make the decisions you make? You want to know why you get into those situations? God's word will show you your heart. Show you your decision-making process. Show you what's happening inside. When you don't understand, God already knows, and he will show it to you. So the Malachi, the, the, the personal messenger of God, has come to begin this book, and we're going to press on. We're going to find out more things. But right now, just remember, if you want to know if your personal spiritual life is on, is on the beam, does everything you do for God come from your love for him? And does your gift fulfill his expectations? Remember, you have to believe in Jesus, and then in light of that belief, you have to commit everything to him. And the third thing, does your gift, or I should say your gift will, cost you dearly? It will cost you everything. It will cost you the rest of your life to be to God everything he wants you to be. So let God's word search you. Let God's word show you who you are, the changes you need to make, and then be strong enough to make those. Let's pray.